Welcome to the podcast of Tony Mayo, executive coach to business owners and their teams. Today's topic is Tony's new book, Crimes of Cunning, a comedy of personal and political transformation in the deteriorating American workplace. Ron Diamond, management consultant and author of EPM Done Right, interviewed Tony just before the book was published. My name is Ron Diamond. Welcome to Tony Mayo's podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Tony's new book, uh, Crimes of Cunning. Uh, and I thought the best way to start with that would be for people who may not be familiar with you to understand a little bit about you, Tony. So maybe you could introduce yourself to us. Sure. I'm an executive coach. I work with the owner-operators of mid-sized businesses, primarily in the Washington, D.C. area. But since almost all of it is done through internet video and telephone calls. I have clients all over the place. And I live in Reston, Virginia with my wife and three children and write a lot, including on my blog, as well as this book that's just about to come out. Very good. Terrific. Well, I've had the the honor and the pleasure of reading a couple of early drafts. So uh, I think we should talk about... Um, uh, well, I'm going to start sort of like with my experience of the book, and then we'll just dive into it. And I found that for me, I'm also a consultant and have some experience in some of the uh, world that you write about. And I noticed for me, the the sort of the big message of the book or the takeaway for me as a consultant is who am I being as a consultant? Am I being, you know, uh, smarter than everybody or right or selfish? Or am I being somebody who's adding value to my clients' organizations? And uh, there's a lot about this in the book. So l- let's do this. Why don't we start off with sort of the genesis, the idea of the book? What had you write this book, first of all? Well, two ideas came together. One, I noticed that there are a number of anecdotes that I told frequently about selling various selling techniques, methods, events. So I began to put them together in a collection of stories. I thought maybe I could make a book out of that. There's one story that was set in the days when I was consulting to MCI. This is the mid-80s when MCI was on the cover of all the business magazines. It was the place to work, new model of American business. Well, that story began to grow, and I realized it started to merge with another part of my sort of personal folklore, which is why I became an executive coach. What I'd always told people for years and years, and it's true, is I got into MCI because it was the great new model of American business. And then I discovered it was a horrible place to work. It was just awful for employees. So I thought, well, if this is the best we've got, there's got to be a better way. And that began my exploration and journey for looking at other techniques, other ideas and approaches to as you said, how to be at work. Mm. There's, uh, there's, I don't want to give away too much. Uh, the other sort of fav- favorite theme of mine in the book is this idea of transformation of a, of a person. So the protagonist in the book. Um, did you set out to write, to write it with any sort of these themes and arcs in mind? Or did that come out as you were writing the smaller stories that you, you know, the, the collection of stories, so to speak? Well, there was a point early on where I realized there were interior events, uh, emotional and personality type things that I wanted to get into, but sticking straight with the facts was going to make it too hard to do that. Hmm. So I turned it into a work of fiction and a novel with all the people who are made up and 
just my idealization or extreme de-idealization. What's the opposite of ideal? <laughs> Denigrate, extreme denigration of some of these uh, right. types. Uh, and so as it turned into work of fiction, I got more freedom. And I realized one day that, oh, there's going to be an arc to this lead character uh, as he realizes that just setting out to do business in a certain sort of Western business school selfish way is not working for him or anyone else. Mm -hmm. And then what happens when he starts making a transition or at least paying attention to people who behave a different way? Right. That's interesting, too. And one thing that, you know, as I was preparing for this conversation, it, it occurred to me that this might be an archetype of the hero's journey. Have had you thought about that? Have you noticed that? Or did you deliberately do that? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, Ron, because I looked in great detail at Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Yeah. And the one everyone knows is Star Wars, the original Star right. Wars movie. And the reason that Luke seems to go through this archetype of the hero's journey is because George Lucas talked to Joseph Campbell and said, what's the universal story? So it's explicitly based on this idea. And it's usually yeah. something of there's someone who is in a village, in a community where he doesn't quite fit. Uh, and then there's a dramatic event where either he chooses or is forced to leave, learns new skills, goes into an area of mystery, and then comes back as the great mm -hmm. hero who saves at least the original community, but maybe the entire world. Right. And this is a story that's used over and over again. Right. Uh, many places. One of my, yeah, one of my favorite elements of that story is that there's some sort of mentor. There's an Obi-Wan ah, yes, Kenobi. Yes. So, so let's talk about your Obi-Wan Obi Kenobi. <laughs> well, I set out to, to use that uh, format, but it didn't quite fit this story. There are little elements mm. of there. It's hard to tell a story yeah. that doesn't have some element of that. But I yeah. didn't uh, follow the template the way I had expected to when I set out. But there's someone you're thinking of in this book as a mentor. Who is that? Well, there, well, there is, and I'm not sure it fits the full profile. But, but again, I am fascinated by the transformation. And again, try not to give away too much. But when you're at that restaurant in Kansas City with the character Gavin, I don't know if something just happened to you before, or as a result of that conversation, or as an insight right after. But right around there, something happened to that character that is called Tony in the book. <laughs> yes, by dramatic coincidence, the lead character is named Tony Mayo. <laughs> I could get the rights to that name. That was an easy one. Well, there are a few things. One is ob observing other people. And one thing I hope emerges for the reader in the book is there are certain characters that Tony doesn't think that much of. Thinks maybe the approach to life is silly or uh, what's the word for it? They're just not as wise and insightful mm. as he is. But then he was just realized the way they're doing it actually works a lot better and he adopts bits of it. So he has some examples. Uh, he even has a client who sits him down a couple of times and tries to get him back onto a more uh, effective path. But the big shift, of course, comes when he steps into a classroom of a sort of it's almost a parody of, of Est and other self-improvement type courses mm -hmm. where he sees a dramatically different figure who is extremely effective, mm -hmm. not only at his own life, but at helping other people incorporate transformation in, into their lives. Mm -hmm. So with some That's examples and some explicit training, he's able to start doing things in a, in a different way. Yeah, yeah. 
And then how much of, of real Tony Mayo is in that character Tony Mayo for the same kind of thing? <laughs> well, uh, that's a question I'm sure is going to keep on coming up as people read the book. And that's why <laughs> I have the disclaimer of veracity at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah you do. No, there are no real people in this book, even the ones <laughs> with names that seem familiar or who you think they are. Uh, it I, seems... I don't know the details of the of the background that what really happened, but it does seem very real. So you gotta you gotta help me understand how much of those conversations and characters really happened to your recollection, or is it mostly composite, uh, 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 sort of sketch? Well, at this point, having written the book and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten the book, it yeah. all seems really real to me. <laughs> so if you <laughs> right. take take some little kernel of an incident from your life and combine it with an idea I, you read about. And then yeah. you write a scene that is detailed, concrete, and emotional. It turns into a memory. It's, wow. it's hard to tell sometimes. Hmm. Uh, so the book's fiction, some similar things probably happened to me, but... Yep. I don't know that any of it is tangibly accurate. Like if there had been a video crew with me, I don't think we could have used any of that footage for the book. <laughs> right. Very good. And you're protecting, obviously, some folks that you've you know encountered in your journeys. I'm um, protecting myself from them. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's zoom out and, and tell us, uh, uh, first of all, who do you want to read this book? Who, who's your audience for this book? Well, I'd love to turn this around, Ron, as, hmm. as one of the people who's read it. Who, yeah. Who do you think would want to read it? I was having a conversation with a client uh, just on Friday, uh, Thursday in their office, and I was mentioning um, this book that I'd read. And he brought up that he was with one of the big uh, eight consultancies back in the 80s. And so I told him about this book, and he was very excited. He said, well, you have to get me a copy of it. So one one audience are people that that lived through it, I think. And to see, you know, how they ended up compared to how the protagonist in your book ended up. I think that's interesting. But the other thing I think is um, uh, new consultants, uh, probably new business people, new managers, just to understand what's important and some of the lessons that you learned or that, you know, a lot of us learned uh, in our journey coming from, um, you know, selfish, introspective to extroverted helpers or however I say it mm -hmm. succinctly. Right. But yeah, so there's some lessons learned that that ought to be passed down. Yeah, I would be thrilled if people getting started with their careers read this book to get a sense of some of the choices you face. That, that there's not just one way to embark on a career. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about the way you're being. That may be a little bit jargony for some of the listeners. But essentially when we're out in the world, particularly interacting with other people, we have an intention. We want to be seen a certain way. We have, want to have a certain effect on the others. But most of the time, for most of us, that is not explicitly chosen. It's an automatic thing. It's something we picked up when we were kids or our parents told us or we're trying to be like some character in a novel but without even realizing it. Or also, the environment tends to call forth certain behavior. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a space that seems to trigger reactions from us. For instance, when people walk into a church, they tend to start to lower their voice and whisper a little bit. Right. Uh, there's something about that environment 
uh, that triggers behaviors. Well, workplaces trigger certain behaviors too. So seldom do we actually step back and say, wait a minute, who do I want to be? Hmm. Do we want to be helpful? Do we want to be ambitious? Do we want to be cleverer than the next guy? And we've seen a lot of these behaviors. In fact, it's a bit of a, a truism in, in group dynamics that if you have a group of people working on a task, someone will become the critic, someone will become the optimistic cheerleader. So there are certain roles that have to be fulfilled and people get pulled to them often without even uh, making any choice or considering what the future is that they desire. That's what I mean by choosing how to be. And I hope this book lays out some alternatives. There are, there are a number of ways to be that if you think about what you intend and how people are reacting, then you can have a life that's more effective and fulfilling. So ideally, the person, the, the reader, will take away from the book the the hero's journey and that point at which you deliberately make a choice or stop what you're doing and notice what your role is or uh, reframe how you experience work, the world of work, or maybe even your entire life. I would hope so. And some of it is done dramatically where you can see examples of people's interaction and what the results are. Mm-hmm. As you know, the, the, the lead character f- for much of the novel is creating crises and upsets with complete oblivion, not even realizing <laughs> that these things are happening because of how he's treating people. Mm-hmm. And, he, and that's one of the key things I'd love to have people take away from the book is if things are happening around you, maybe it's not them. Yeah. If you keep running into the same sort of upsets, irritations, letdowns, well, maybe you're the common factor in that one. Right, right. And, and once you notice that, well, wow, the good news is I have a lot of power. I can cause all these upsets and breakdowns and, and things around me. Maybe I could cause happiness and results and, and productivity by adjusting how I interact with people. It's sort of like a game. And you, and you if you notice that you're playing one game and then you get to choose, oh, I'll play a different game, one that's more rewarding or more interesting or more energizing. Right. I think games a useful concept. I do notice sometimes when people hear that, they think that we are somehow diminishing or trivializing it, trivializing it, calling it juvenile. No, it's just a game in the sense that there's one outcome you prefer over another. It's not assured that it'll turn out the way you prefer. An interesting game not only has that sort of chance aspect, but there's often someone trying to work against you. There's Mm -hmm. another team, there's another player. The yeah. other thing that makes a game good is other people could be cooperating with you to make mm. achieve your goals. And Would there are start, rules. And there are rules. That's not the key thing right. about the games. There, there's rules. But so many of the rules are not explicit. You can't just look mm-hmm. inside the box and, and, and agree this is how we're going to play. Yeah. People come to the game with their own rules sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of it, uh, certainly it's it's you know, 90% about personal relationships. Maybe the other 10% is the relationship you have with yourself in your head. But so much I took away was how you relate to other people, how we, how I relate to other people in my uh, day-to-day, you know, dealings. And I think what you've shown us in the book is a possible way of dealing with people that has them uh, uh, feel honored or respected or listened to. That's the sort of second you know, post-transformation part of it. Right. And in the first part, it's more, um, I'm just going to force my will on you and I'm going to win and I don't care what you say and I've already judged you. Right, right. Right. And something else that I hope is a, 
clear theme of the book is back to that idea I said earlier of a space calling forth certain behavior is the space for corporations that we've created first in America, now in pretty much all of the world of how we evaluate the people who manage and lead corporations Mm -hmm. has created workplaces that are going to call forward some pretty awful behavior. Yeah. And connecting tax policy and uh, financial design to why this meeting really sucks is one of the things I'm most proud of in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, there's the, there's your personal uh, dealings and then, and then you as an individual, but there's so much going on in the environment and the business in the eighties and, and MCI and Anderson and Enron going on. And uh, I guess I understand from your, from the dust jacket and conversations with you that your hope is that, you know, we stay away from that. We don't, we don't, we don't, you know, repeat that. We learn from our mistakes. Well, part of the journey of the character that is similar to my own is I definitely was quite clear and sure uh, based on the space I was in, which was University of Chicago's economics department and business school, that capitalism and individuals pursuit of power and control is the best way to operate everything, particularly businesses. But after the meltdown in 2007, uh, it became clear it was time to take a second look at that. Mm-hmm. And as I began to research for the book, which occurs, as you mentioned, in the mid-80s, when so many of these decisions were made that has the world be the way it is now, MCI mm-hmm. was the first high-growth, high-tech company of this era. It had a lot of the characteristics that people take for granted now right. and these high-pressure, high-tech startups. But the other thing that happened right at that time was people began to accept that the purpose of a corporation was to give as much money as possible to the shareholders. Mm. That is so ingrained now that when I mention this to people, they go, so what? Isn't that just what it's for? No, not for the first 2,000 years it wasn't. Mm. Uh, And it just suddenly changed in the 80s. And that also is consistent with the personal theme of the novel, which is individuals can have a huge impact. Milton Friedman just made this up, that this is what corporations are for. And it was an absurd idea at the time. He even grants that people were embarrassed to uh, admit that this was something they should study in school. Hmm. Uh, Till now, it has become, uh, people seem to think it is the only possible way to do it. And what's that thing that saying about uh, an innovation? You know, first first it's absurd. First it sounds like, yes. And then after a while, it's common knowledge. Everybody knows that, right? Right. It's wrong. It's ridiculous. It's unsupported. It's obvious. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk about people making a difference at the at the grand scale, like Milton Friedman. But let's talk about at the at the one to one scale. The character uh, of the the main character's wife. I've noticed that in the conversations that the the protagonist has with his wife, uh, he becomes sort of his best self. He's he's um, a little bit more vulnerable and honest and uh, softer and listens. And I think that that's a good um, uh, possible reflection of his best self. What do you think about uh, the character of the wife, how she comes across in the book? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the way the, the lead character interacts with his wife. To show you just how inaccurate the book is to my actual experience in life, uh, my wife's first reaction upon reading the book was, 
how come you're not like this guy when you talk to me? <laughs> Softer, more vulnerable, willing to take advice. <laughs> so, well, it's an idealized version. Right. Right. So there's something for you. You're going to get something out of reading this book too, aren't you? I do. Uh, I do. That's, it's also what I get out of being an executive coach. Yeah. Many, many times I'll finish a conversation with a client where they'll get clear there's some action they want to incorporate or a habit they want to create. And I'll hang up and I'll think, you know, you really should do that too. That is a terrific idea. <laughs> uh, and I have this strong motivation to carry that out because yeah. I don't want to be a hypocrite. If, if I'm yeah. really clear this is a better way to live, I'll do it for the sake of my clients when I want to do it for my own sake. Oh, very good. Let's let's broaden that conversation a little bit and talk about community. How, your other book, uh, Courage to Be in Community, how would you say this book, Crimes of Cunning, relates to, uh, at, if at all, to, to Courage to Be in Community? I hadn't thought about it before, but it does seem like they are about 30 years apart. Mm -hmm. The ideas expressed in the nonfiction book, The Courage to Be in Community, which are essentially, how can I behave in such a way that other people feel comfortable being themselves with me, heartfelt expression of themselves in my presence, as well as how can I be more courageous and bold to let other people know who I really am with all the vulnerability that entails. That is so much further along the way of personal expression development than what the character in my current novel goes through. It seems like it should be almost as far apart in time as the experiences were in my own life. Yeah, very cool. Very interesting. It is the idealized self in, in Courage to Be in Community. And if only the the character in your book had listened to that in the 80s or, or got that. <laughs> oh, but, but, but you had the to character. Through, would, no, no way that character <laughs> would read that book. What is this? Bleeding well, that's, heart that's liberal true. stuff. It's true. So the character had to go through the experiences he had to go through in order to get to the point where he got and to make a choice to be different. Right? You, know, you can't, that's something you can't I, just have a magic yeah. wand and fix everybody. Yes, that, things. Well, first of all, you can give up the idea that people need to be fixed. That could be helpful. <laughs> right. Uh, Another foundation of coaching. And things can happen suddenly, like you noticed in the book, that the character was sort of digging a deeper and deeper hole by doing his sort of selfish, rational, individualistic approach harder and faster, mm. and then just said, wait a minute, that's not working. It's doing the opposite of what I hope. Let's do something else. So people can flip quite quickly. Then this little this backsliding in habits and so on. But it does seem like things happen in an instant rather than gradually over time. Yeah. But it occurs to me that our conversation today is much more serious than it generally is on our podcast. And we're going to give the people the impression that this is a grim economics textbook <laughs> about how to fix the life of someone that no one wants to be anyway. <laughs> well, the first half is gr there is grimness and you have to go through that to come to the second half, which is hope and possibility. Right. Yeah. And that's that's a concept I, I hear a lot. And it's one I've always had difficulty with is people saying, well, you know, of course, I, I survived cancer on that shipwreck while my children starved to death. But I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because now it made me the person I am. Uh, it, but, it, but it's true, right? I mean, it's one yeah. of those things you can't actually argue with because yeah. you can't run the experiment the other way. That is what it took for people to get to be where they are now. And yeah. I resist that. I keep thinking I could just go back as with a novel 
and yeah. edit parts of my life. So oh, I've got the insight. Can I just cut out that pain that I needed to get it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Sorry. So let's see what else. Oh, the I, I'm also uh, I happen to be along the journey with you when you were writing the book. So let's talk a little, little bit about the process sure, of writing yeah. the book. And well, as a fellow author, you, I'm sure you'd be interested in that. Yeah. So what was that like for you? Well, for years and years, I thought I would write books and didn't. And finally, I decided to adopt the maybe the one piece of advice I'd never taken, which is to make it your top priority. For me, the early part of the day is the most clear thinking and productive part of the day. So I took that ideal, valuable slice of time and devoted it to writing. That's how I got the first book done. It was just the first thing I did every morning, often from 7 or 7 a.m. for an hour and a half or two hours. I didn't set any goals for amount of writing in words or pages or topics. I just said, if I devote 90 minutes to writing every day, it's a good day. Hmm. And it was. It was just remarkable. The whole rest of the day was gravy. Like, well, I did that. At least I wrote something. And I could deal with trivia and maintenance and or disappointments and say, well, but I got further along with my book. So I got through that book and then I started working on the sales stories. One of those sales stories grew into this novel. Most of the time writing and rewriting the book, I just loved it. I just enjoyed it a lot. Never have writer's block. Sometimes I wasn't sure how to handle something. Sometimes you have to get the characters to a certain place so they can interact and do the thing you want to do. You have to work those out. But that was fun. That would sort of come to me other parts of the day, and it was fun to get that insight. Mm. And then the real work started. The routine pretty much was to reread what I'd written the day before and rewrite it. Then I'd write for a while. I'd reread that and rewrite it. That's a day. Then I'd go do it again the next day. So I'd writ, writ, <laughs> I'd read and rewritten everything three or four times by the time I got through the whole book. And then I went to the beginning of the book and I went through and rewrote it again. Then I read it out loud. We hear, you hear things you don't see. I thought, it's done. Hmm. I sent it to an editor and rewrote it for, I think, two and a half months after that. And I sent it to the editor, there's more work on it, rewrote it some more. And now, at this point in July, I'm going through the typesetting and design and just as I'm proving fonts and placement of footnotes, I'm saying, oh, that sentence is not good. Let me fix that sentence. <laughs> right, and that, right. there's a lot of drudgery in that aspect of it. Some of it's like, just yeah. I want it done. I have yeah. no idea anymore if the book is any good because I'm sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd heard years ago something that kept me going. I heard it on a radio interview with a fellow who described himself as a professional author. He said, I don't mean I'm, prof I'm a professional because that's my job. What makes me professional is... When I'm at that point, when the book is no fun and looks like a pile of junk, I keep working on it. That's professionalism. And that kept me going many times, mm. even now, because there's still work to be done to get it onto Kindles and onto paper. Yeah. Wow. So if we took the total amount of time that you put into this book times your hourly rate and looked at the <laughs> price of the book, it's a bargain. Pennies yeah, right, right. For the, for the, for the purchaser. <laughs> It's one of those painful experiences for me that I would have liked to have gotten the insight without the pain. <laughs> well, let's let's uh, wrap this up. What what have we not talked about your book that you're dying for people to know? 
Well, I think some parts of it are really funny, but apparently you don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't say that. What I remember, what I'm most passionate about, most interested in is, is the transformation story. Yes. Yes, that's yeah. what carries it all through. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the design is to have a character that you can uh, care about who does something, a, a transformation, a, a period of growth that is, is worthwhile that people can identify with. Yeah. And to use that drama and character arc to educate a good deal. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot in there uh, for learning for people that deal with, you know, the, 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 the client consultant relationship, but also inside a business. Anyone that works with teams or has to uh, persuade other people to part with capital in order to do a project that they believe in or, uh, you know, just simply wants to get something done. There's uh, lessons in there for ways of being that should help you do that a lot more with a lot less effort and more uh, uh, satisfaction than maybe you're doing it now. Is there a particular incident or concept from the book that you found that was valuable for you? It's how it's who you who you are how, when you deal with people where it's where you come from seems to be the crux of it all. Uh, you know, I have talked about this in the past. If I'm trying to if I if, if I'm trying to. Um, sell a, 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 a finance process solution to a client and I come from, I've got to make this sale to make my number, I fail. If I come from, no, this is really going to impact your business and I can see a, a future state where people are you know freeing up more time to do analytics, which is what I want them to do, then I'm more, uh, I come across as a completely different person. Is One of my tests for a good book is if I find myself thinking about a particular scene or character uh, as though it was in, from my personal experience and sort of rolling it over and uh, either savoring it or second guessing it and wondering, well, suppose it had gone this way. Is there any particular scene or it, relationship? Yeah, that- it's, it's the dinner scene with Gavin. That's my favorite. That's the pivotal one for me. I really like that. And it's who you're it's how you're talking to that guy and who you're being in that conversation that you're creating with him for converse. It's a, it's a, 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 a pre-sales meeting where you're talking about your strategy for going into a sales meeting and uh, you're a different person. And I, and I'm very curious about that. And, and, you know, for myself, want to make sure that when I have those similar conversations that I come from a place of contribution and not, you know, you know, I have to do this or whatever it is. Right. As I listen to you talk about that, it would have been, uh, quite a different experience if the lead character from the beginning of the novel had been preparing for that same sales call <laughs> with his boss. Yeah. Oh, what a yeah. clash of oh, oh, uh, it would sparks. Be, I, ima- yeah, I imagine it to be about, okay, how can we turn the knife? How can we create fear and uncertainty <laughs> and doubt? How can I make my number? How can we jack up the price? It would be all those things. Right. Meanwhile, his boss yeah. is thinking, how can I get him not to go with me in the room? How can I just leave him in the diner? <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's also a very good idea to have a team have a meeting meetings of a meeting of minds about uh, what your possibility is that you're creating uh, for other audiences before you do it. I think that's very powerful. I don't do that enough in my in my work. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that in business today, the tendency is to just dive in and start. Let's go. And then things break down, go wrong are unpredictable, unpleasant outcomes occur, and then you try to fix them. It mm-hmm. seems like so much of business life today is fixing things instead of doing them right the first time through. Mm-hmm. There's never time to do it right. There's always time to fix it is a common complaint. But then there's the slow, fast method, 
which is to slow things down, think carefully about what the outcome is you want to create, what the space would be to create a greater chance of that happening, who you would need to be in the situation, talk with people, put together the right team, get aligned, sit down in the diner for 10 minutes or an hour mm -hmm. and rehearse it, role play yeah. it. Then you go and do it. The chances of it working out are much higher. And then immediately after the critical event occurs, have the action, after action review. Well, we expected this. That happened. What do you suppose we can yeah. learn from that? Yeah. And roll that into your next prep meeting. Yeah. The American approach to business is the, the fast, slow method. Get started fast, then things slow down. And in our business, well, the one you used to be in, systems development, mostly gets done so slow it never gets done. Most systems implementation projects just never deliver on what they were intended to do. They just close down, thrown away. Preparation, getting clarity about what you're up to, and then after action reviews, really underutilized. Well, that's that's a great segue to this question is, uh, if you're like me, uh, right after writing a book, I never want to write another book again. So now, <laughs> what's rolling around in there? Are you thinking about another book? Are you preparing? Oh, yeah. Are you absolutely? What's next? I, I should live so long to get all these <laughs> books written. Uh, yeah, I'm, that's one of the reasons I think having so much uh, resistance and difficulty with the rewriting and the formatting and the marketing of the book. I'd rather be writing. Yeah. I want to go back and finish that collection of stories about selling. And I'm very eager to write the story of the time I crashed an airplane. And there are a couple others that I'm, I'm very eager to write up. I just got a fantastic idea from my editor the other day. I, I wrote to her. I don't know if I've told you this, Ron. I sent her a, a list of my most popular blog posts. And I said, everyone keeps telling me there's a book in my blog. How would you like to find it? She wrote back a couple days later, said, I read a bunch of your articles it seems like they're all about conversation. Mm. You should write a book called The Conversation Contract. Oh, wow. And oh, it seems like it. it seems like it hit you the same way it hit me like, oh, of course. That's obvious now that you say it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was listening to one of our old podcasts and we talked about the conversation contract and the diagram and and I thought, man, do I ever not use that enough? So, yeah, it's very powerful stuff, very useful stuff. So, I'm not sure uh, which not one is next. People. Not sure which yeah. one is next, but Got it. Eager to get back into that routine of giving the best two hours of insight and productivity over to just, writing the book. Just so we don't leave our listeners hanging, did you survive the plane crash? How did that turn out? I, I did survive, yes. You did? Okay, good. <laughs> well done. Uh, where can people, where and when can people find your, your new book? The book will be available wherever books are sold. Hardcover, paperback, Audible, audiobook, iTunes, audiobook, Kindle. Uh, sometime in late August, early September. It's called Fantastic. Crimes of Cunning. Terrific. Thank you for taking the time, Tony, to walk us through uh, that, the insights of the book and the process of creating it. And I'm um, looking forward to reading it again, actually. I'm <laughs> going to do that when it comes out in hard copy. All right. Thanks, Ron. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. The book, Crimes of Cunning, is available in hardcover and paperback wherever books are sold. Learn more about the book at tinycc slash two cunning. That's T-I-N-Y dot C-C slash the number two C-U-N-N-I-N-G, all in lowercase letters. We appreciate your comments, suggestions for future topics, and most of all, stories of how you applied the coaching. 
Our email address is podcast at mayogenuine.com. This podcast is the property of executive coach Tony Mayo, all rights reserved worldwide.